there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Marita Golden. Marita Golden attended public schools in Washington, D.C. and graduated from American University and the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. She's been a faculty member in the MFA Creative Writing Programs at George Mason University and Virginia Commonwealth University, and the MA Program in Creative Writing at Johns Hopkins University. She's also been a writer in residence at the University of the District of Columbia and Prince George's Community College. She has lectured and taught internationally at universities in Israel, Turkey, and Spain. She is the recipient of many literary awards, including the Washington Writers Conference Lifetime Achievement Award just last month, and she's been inducted into the International Literary Hall of Fame of Writers of African Descent at the Gwendolyn Brooks Center at Chicago State University. Join us for what is certain to be a stimulating and informative conversation with author and activist, Rita Golden. Rita, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris, I'm glad to be here. No, thanks for your time today. Your latest book, The Strong Black Woman, How a Myth Endangers the Physical and Mental Health of Black Women was published late last year. Would you do us the honor of reading a brief passage from it, please? Okay, sure. Well, I'm going to actually read a passage from a section of the book where I'm talking with Black women about mental health and healing. One of the things I wanted to do in the book is destigmatize uh, seeking professional mental health care. And so I sought out women who had gone through therapy, found it helpful, and were willing to talk openly about how it had helped them heal and how it allowed them to set boundaries. I'm going to read a small section from a portion um, of a story of a young woman named Jamie, who talks about growing up in a family that had a fair amount of dysfunction. Um, and because she was designated as the anchor child, the, the child who was most significantly leaned on by family, she bore a tremendous emotional burden. And she talked openly about her struggle to heal from that. And I, I, th I really like this section because it does a couple of things. It gets her talking about the power of seeking professional mental health, but also it recognizes the power of faith, you know, religious faith as an important part of our spiritual journey. Um, so this is, <laughs> this is Jamie talking about her family. She says, no doubt we were jacked up. We were a mess. But our church was where we all came together, no matter what. I remember when I was 10 years old, one Sunday, I went up to the sanctuary and a woman prayed over me. She affirmed my purpose and what God had in store for me. I'll never forget that. The memory of that woman's hands kept pushing me through everything. That and the family prayer line that my mother's side of the family set up and that I'm still part of, my own faith, my mother's faith, all that got me through everything. And everything included while in college being the family breadwinner, using her scholarship money to buy food and pay household bills. Everything included watching her parents' 36 year marriage end, but because endings are rarely neat, seeing bitterness and distance and quarrels still erupt. Because by then I was deeply into the superwoman, the strong black woman syndrome, all of this was my burden to carry, Jamie said. But at 19, she took the first of many steps to lay her burden down by going to counseling for adult children and alcoholics. Quote, prayer led me to counseling. All my life I've been told not to share our business, but prayer helped me realize it was okay to seek professional counseling outside the church. She found faith to endure and overcome in church, but in group counseling, she could hear and see through the din and the fog of her life at home. She began to put the pieces together like a puzzle. Her father told her, stand up for yourself. Don't let white people keep you down. But that warning was followed by the accusation that she talked too much 
and had a smart mouth. Her mother said, be proud, be a proud black woman, be strong, I love you, but don't tell anybody our business. Tell me what you feel, but I need you. You can handle this. You're the first one I call, the one I can always depend on. Jamie was crumbling beneath this burden, but in group therapy, that was one place where she could be herself, something she was still discovering. In the midst of this turmoil and pain, she had what she would call the first honest conversation she'd ever had with her parents. I told them, I can't carry you. I can't carry my anger. I can't carry my hurt. She set boundaries and put herself first. I wasn't protected as a child, but now I was ready to protect myself. I told them, I love you, mom. I love you, dad, but I release you. I choose me. A strong black woman has been described as part poetic meditation, part research-driven journalism. It also involves quite a personal firsthand experience for you. Could you take us to that experience, please? Well, this is a book that I wrote during uh, the lockdown, uh, 2020. And that was a period where a lot of us were forced to re-examine our lives, our priorities, what was important. And this was a period for me where I found myself examining the issue of health. Um, I had had kind of a, an episode where I felt like I was having a stroke. I actually was not having a stroke, fortunately. Um, but my doctor said, you know, let's check you out. Let's have an MRI. And the MRI revealed that at some time in the distant past, I'd had two silent strokes. Now, my family genetic history is stroke on my mother's side, which is what she died of, and heart attack on my father's side. So that's my genetic inheritance. I can't help that. But when I saw my mother die at 21 and my father die at 23, I made a commitment to be very, very healthy. I decided I was going to live longer than them. And I started meditating, walking, cardio, um, great diet, going to the, the psychiatrist when I needed to. And what I realized was that actually the fact that I'd done all that meant that those two silent strokes could have been lethal if not for the very serious health regimen I'd had. So then I got to thinking about black women, black women's health, and I went online and found that there was a very vigorous discussion going on around the strong black woman and the fact that this was a belief system, a cultural conditioning, a complex, a syndrome that had been active in our community for generations. And that now many, many black women were saying, time's up, we need to re-examine this because it has a dark, toxic side. What is the myth of the strong black woman and how did the myth and the strong black woman syndrome come about? Well, it's a myth of the invincibility and sort of super strength of black women. And it, it's a maladaptation to the stresses of our, our painful history. Uh, that is our, the history of our enslavement, the history of the painful years of legal segregation, and even the current history of systemic racism, which we now know has a physical, a negative physical impact on the bodies of black people. Scientists are actually discovering that the pressures of systemic racism shorten people's lives, make it harder for them to be healthy. But in the face of the pressures of all of this, being strong was our automatic reaction. For example, how could you show your real emotions to a person who was enslaving you? How could you show real fear, what you really felt to people who would use whatever power they had to hurt you physically, hurt you emotionally, marginalize you, so that tapping down true emotions became second nature as a survival mechanism. Now, there's a great deal of pride that black women feel when they say, I'm a strong black woman. But for our grandmothers and our mothers lived in a different world. We live in a world now 
where we can talk about the underside, the dark side of feeling that you have to be strong all the time. And this is gonna be a many generations project, but I'm very glad to be part of the quote army of people who are now dismantling it. You know, a moment ago, you mentioned how you wrote this book during the pandemic and you did a little, I won't say soul searching, but you know, mental health was top of mind to you as it was for a lot of people, you know, certainly over the last two plus years. And I've been saying this show for over a year and a half now, because we've had at least half of them focused on mental health and well-being, that, that the one positive spotlight, I personally think, again, just me, to come from COVID oh, yeah. is we're talking about mental health. Oh, yeah. And it's not taboo. It's not in the kitchen table. And when you don't talk about it with crazy cousin Jimmy or something like that, and then you're taking it a layer deeper in terms of focusing on the mental health of Black women. And you mentioned the physical effects of it in terms of uh, systemic racism. And about a year ago, I remember seeing a study come out early on in COVID, about halfway through COVID, I should say, that showed that the average lifespan of Americans reduced during COVID. And, right. was, and I think for white men, it was about a year. For women, it was a little less than a year. But for white, I'm sorry, for Black men, it was a year and a half shorter lifespan. And I'm sure for Black women, it was probably even more. I believe it was 1.7, yeah, yeah. I believe. And, you know, the funny thing is that um, people often will say in our community, you know, that because we are darker skinned, because we have melanin, that there's a saying in the black, you know, black don't crack. That is, you know, you look many years younger than you are. But the tragic irony of that is that inside the bodies of black women, there's just an eruption of ill health. And a lot of this is, we know the, the long historic reasons, but one of the things that the Strong Black Woman Complex does is it allows women to deprioritize their own health and put the health of everyone else first. So that when you are the family fixer, the community fixer, the, the family ATM, the family therapist for everybody else, you actually conversely, there's a, there's, a, there's a weird pride that many black women take in sacrificing themselves, in being that all important person. And because we do not have a history of talking about mental health and talking about health, it's easy to let our health go by the wayside. And for too many black women, that is what happens. Black women are leading and obesity-related illnesses that result in death, stroke, heart attack. And one of the unspoken reasons that African-American women suffer from obesity, so, and, and Black women suffer disproportionately, is because Black women are disproportionately victims of all types of trauma, sexual trauma, traumas that are unhealed unhealed for a variety of reasons. And what happens is that when you're carrying that trauma and you combine it with all the other things that affect black women's lives, particularly poor black women, black women use food as a form of addiction to make themselves feel good. And so black women are carrying not just physical weight, but the weight of stories that and, and actions that have harmed them. A moment ago, you mentioned systemic racism. What role does the economic inequality that exists in our country play in the mental health care that Black women receive or don't receive? And how do we fix them? Well, you know, even today, just talk about health. I mean, there's still a prevalent belief in 2022 in the medical industry that Black people have a higher threshold for pain, for physical pain, than white people do. And so if black people have a higher threshold for physical pain, in, in, if that's a belief system, certainly there's a belief system that we have a higher threshold, we can carry more emotional pain. And uh, because so many black communities do not have the kinds of services, uh, mental health services, health services, people live in food deserts. And to talk for a minute about I don't want to say food desert. I prefer food apartheid because food apartheid signals that it has actually been a choice. It's been designed that some people will live in communities for, for whatever reasons, 
that there are a very small number of healthy food choices. And for example, just talk about food. Uh, the, the shooting in Buffalo that happened a couple of weeks ago, that happened at a grocery store that was the only store within about 30 miles that people in that community could buy food and get their prescriptions filled. Now, after 10 people were killed in that grocery store, that is shut down. And what was already a, a community suffering from a food apartheid is, is now doubly victimized. And food is so important because food fuels your body's growth. Literally, if, if you don't have good food options, you can't think straight. If you have access to fresh food, good food, you think better, you process your life better. So that just what we take into our bodies is, 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 is poisoning us. So all these, um, now one of the things that's come out of COVID that's very interesting, I've talked to many people in the mental health industry who said, the great thing is that now we have tele medical, you know, so that people can, <laughs> they can talk to the therapist on their phone. And Zoom. <laughs> yeah, yeah like Zoom. I mean, it's like crazy. But then the problem is that there are not enough therapists to, you know, to go around. But that just means that we have to start training more therapists. We have to maybe um, redefine what a therapist is, speed up the process. But I think the good thing that has come out is we are now talking about this. And in the Black community, I'm sure as they're in the society at large, there's a big generational difference. Younger African-Americans are much more open about um, talking about therapy, about seeking therapy. So there's a big generational difference. You know, that's a perfect segue. It's almost like you're reading my notes. You know, we, when you and I spoke last week, I mentioned two young gentlemen, Daniel Fairley and John Thompson, uh, both of the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, they were guests last year, and mental health in the Black community was a focal point of our conversation along with the Black Lives Matter movement. They shared their perspective about how the stigma surrounding mental health manifests itself in the Black community. How do you see that stigma affecting Black women? Well, it, it affects Black women in that, see, one of the things the strong Black woman complex does is it does a number of things. It, it corrupts our relationships with people. When we have to present the image of being strong all the time and having all the answers, we're presenting actually a false image of who we are. We're not being honest with ourselves or with others. It also disempowers the people in our lives when we feel that we have to answer their problems. We disempower them. And so I've talked to therapists who work with black women and one of them said to me, she said, you know, my black women are so busy, 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 busy. They come into my office. They're on the phone. I have to tell them, put the phone down. And then even in the midst of a session, they will ask, you know, is it okay for me to say this? So that the idea that you have a right to say, I hurt, you have a right to say, I want to heal. You have the right to say, I'm in pain. You have the right to ask for help. Those are totally new conversations. And as I said, many of us are now are, are teaching the language of that to, uh, to, to black women. In the beginning of the show, you read the excerpt about Jamie and told a bit of her story. And there's a big focus on faith. Faith has been the rock solid foundation upon which black families and communities have relied for centuries. Does faith play a part for better or worse and the decision to seek professional mental health care? I think that you have two, two different sides. You have many uh, people in the more traditional religious faith traditions who feel that Jesus is my doctor. Jesus is my medicine. And then you have more and more progressive ministers, um, and younger people who are saying, Jesus told me to call my mental health professional. <laughs> and so you have these two things going on. I remember, in, I think in the book, I include a quote from a doctor, no, not a doctor, but a minister in Brooklyn, New York, where the community was just ravaged by COVID. 
And he was seeing not just the deaths, but the mental health issues that those left behind struggled with. And he said that he told his parishioners that God wanted you to seek mental health, that that was an act of faith. That was an affirmative act of faith to seek mental health. So I think that we're seeing a, a shift. Um, we really are. And I think faith is, you know, faith, they, studies have been, have been done that show that people who are active in their church or whatever, they actually have lives that are materially better. They have lives that are emotionally better because they have a community to support them. But we just need those communities now to um, sign off on <laughs> seeking mental health. What do we need to do as a society and what do black women need to do to put the myth of the strong black woman to rest and to begin to undo its damage? Well, I think that one of the, is, is that a lot of what needs to be done in our community is being done. I think in the large community, if we had a system of universal health care in this country that was easy to access and was actually universal, many of the issues around health and mental health for all Americans and especially African-Americans could be addressed. So I want to put this in the larger framework. This is something that the black community cannot do alone. And many of the issues that black women face, they are manifested differently among white women, but they're still there. So first we really need the universal health care system. And we know that one of the reasons we don't have an easily accessible universal health care system is because of systemic racism. The resistance to it is actually, is much of it is racially based. Um, so that's number one. And number two in our community, if we can get many of the um, nonprofit sectors, churches, educational institutions, um, sororities, fraternities, really working on this issue. And I see a lot of evidence that this is happening. I've been very gratified by the response to my book. For example, uh, I've been asked to, uh, I was asked to do a three month virtual residency at Johns Hopkins Medical uh, to talk to the staff there about mental health issues, about first the book, and then I do a 90 minute mental health workshop and we even do a workshop writing through trauma. And the response to that was so positive that I've been asked to offer those kinds of sessions every quarter. So this is a, a large institution, Johns Hopkins Medical, that has hospitals all over the country. And they're weaving this into the, 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 the workforce. And they even have a program where they're re-examining the impact of COVID on the workforce, how it changed them emotionally, et cetera. So I really do think that in terms of people who are concerned about health, people who are health activists and so are, are concerned about this. I just wish the other forces, the politicians and the government would get behind this. Couldn't agree more. You know, and President Biden and his State of the Union talked about a big mental health plan. We'll see how that rolls out, but at least they're talking about it. You know, that's the, the biggest speech yeah. you give as president. So at yeah. least it's out there. And, and so much of the gun violence that we're seeing, yes, it is partially because of the, we're washing guns and we're washing guns for reasons that have to do with racial fear, as well as people, um, being disempowered and being mentally challenged. But, and, and if we could get, if, we, if, we, if people didn't feel so anxious in this society, I mean, Canada has loads of guns. They have loads of guns in Canada, but it's a different, a different scenario. So um, I think that we're at a point in our society right now where we're going through a psychotic break. That's the only, 
definition I have for it. Absolutely agree. And I've been saying for months, or if not a year now, that you know, when we come out this other side of COVID, and we're still not there yet, we're going to have a tsunami in the mental health, the mental health crisis, and we are starting to see that wave yeah. start to crest. Yeah, hundred percent yeah. agree. Yeah. And a moment ago, you talked about your residency at Johns Hopkins, and how writing was part of the, the the program. I'd say about every third or fourth article I see that's like you know top ten things to do with your mental health, journaling is always in there. Mm-hmm. Where did your love for writing come from? And when did you decide that you were going to be a writer? Well, I think I was, I just came into the world as a writer. I don't think that I chose writing. Writing chose me. I have the, a kind of temperament where from the time I was a child, I was very curious and I was fascinated by stories and I wanted to make up my own stories. So I think that writing shows me and writing is one of the ways that I live in the world. So. (laughs) We've been talking to Rita Golden and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Marita Golden. Marita, you've been a freelance writer throughout your career. Many writers seek the security of writing full-time for single publication. Why'd you take the path of freelance writing? Well, I was a freelance writer um, in my early days. And then um, I I got in the academy, but I've always kind of kept a foot in journalism in writing, but uh, writing's a tough field to make money in. I mean, <laughs> it really is. Uh, but I've been fortunate uh, to have made my share. But frankly, I, I, I taught for many, many years in the academy. And I found teaching is something that I love to do. And I now have what I call the University of Marita Golden. I teach my own workshops. And I do uh, literary consulting and work with people on manuscripts. Um, and it's, it's funny because someone asked me the other day, uh, we were talking about starting out as a writer. And I told him that I got my first paycheck, my real first paycheck as a writer from Essence Magazine back in 1973, 73 or 74. 
And it was a check for $1,500, which is a lot of money back then. And I took a picture of it and I framed it and I put it in my <laughs> apartment. So um, it's, been, it's been real satisfying to, you know, to, to be both a journalist, because I was trained as a journalist. I went to the J School at Columbia and that was fantastic training. And that trained me for all the writing that I do now. It got me over the fear of having a blank page because you, as a journalist, you have to figure out, you've got a deadline and you've got to figure out how to put something on the page. You're the author of at least 19 published works of fiction and nonfiction. How do you choose your topics? Well, again, my topics, they really do choose me. And I think they choose me because I've been, not just do I want to write, but I'm available for certain stories. For example, back in 2017, my novel, The Wide Circumference of Love was published. And it's a novel about a African-American family in Washington, DC, uh, living with Alzheimer's disease. The, the, the patriarch of the family, a successful architect, develops early onset Alzheimer's. Now, I have no idea where that came from. And that's the beautiful thing is that I was actually working on a novel had about a hundred pages written. And some of the, some, it was set in Washington, these characters, they were just roaming around in search of a story. And so I put them aside and I said, oh God, I'll never finish this, just forget it. And then about a couple of weeks later, those same characters were found a new life in this story about Alzheimer's. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm, because I'm willing to write stories that are challenging, the stories that are hard, those are the stories that choose me. So I don't have a husband who has Alzheimer's. I was never a caregiver, but this story chose me. And I think I was the right person because not only do, did I do the novel, but while I was researching the novel, I discovered in my research that African-Americans are twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's. And this was a, a statistic that back then, this would have probably been 2015, was not widely known. I mean, even many people who were professionally working with people with Alzheimer's, when I would interview them and tell them this, they were unaware. So then uh, after I finished the novel, I took that statistic to a friend of mine who's an editor at the Washington Post Sunday Magazine. And she said, oh my God, we have to do a story. So then I did a major piece, probably the first piece that focused on African-Americans being twice as likely. And then because I had been deeply inspired by the stories that family members told me about caring for someone with Alzheimer's, how yes, it was challenging. Yes, there were moments of depression, but that caring for someone with that disease had the potential to connect you to the love you had for them in a deep way that you would never have expected. So I thought I wanted to do an anthology. And so the anthology is called Us Against Alzheimer's. And it's, a, it's an anthology of fiction and nonfiction where the, all the stories are about Alzheimer's. And so I ended up spending several years writing fiction, journalism, and editing and about a subject that you would think that I had no connection to, but that's what I mean. I was the right vessel for that, whether I knew why I was writing it or not. Maybe you can give us a glimpse into the University of Marita Golden's curriculum. What writing routine do you follow and what's the average writing day look like if there is such a thing as average? Well, when I was younger, I would write, uh, usually, and I'd be teaching at the university, and so I'd usually have two or three days that I would say, okay, I'm going to write for a couple of hours during those days. But now I can set my own schedule, and actually I write much less. I write, if I'm working on a book, I will usually write about five days a week, and I'll write it for an hour. I no longer feel that I have to write for four or five hours. I can write for a shorter period of time and write deeper. I can write with a, with a sense that the story is perpetually unfolding and that I don't have to have all the answers 
on any particular day. So that it's usually about an hour a day, five days a week. Six of your novels have been published. Was your first work of fiction published? Or like many authors, did you write several novels before your first one was accepted by a publisher? No, my, actually my very first book was a memoir, Migration to the Heart. My first novel followed that. So I was very fortunate in that after I, I lived in Nigeria for about four years with my first husband and came out of that experience um, with a very, very rich experience of having come of age in the 1960s, um, found my black identity, uh, lived in Nigeria for several years, got to answer the questions of, can you go home again? And um, even as I went to a very patriarchal, traditional society and culture, um, I'll straighten that out. Um, with the perspective of being a feminist <laughs> and, and very non-traditional. So the cultural clash was there, but, but of course that made a great story. So that was my very first book. I had written a novel, I will say that, I had written a novel which did not see the light of day <laughs> because the agent that I went to said, oh, this is, this is okay, you're a good writer. But she looked at me and she said, you're living in Africa, right? You're living in Nigeria and you're married into a polygamous family and you're a feminist. And she pointed out all the dramatic elements. And she said, why aren't you writing about that? I don't wanna write about that. I wanna write this novel, which was semi-autobiographical. And she's okay, but she said, you know, the novel's okay, but." you are really living an incredible story. And so then when I, my marriage started falling apart, I could see the, this is when you know you're a writer, when you're in the midst of a terrible marriage and it's falling apart, but you're thinking about how can I write about this? And you're researching and you're gathering evidence and you're, re, you're, you're interviewing your Nigerian family so they can give you details of African culture because you're planning your escape that they don't know about <laughs> because you're gonna write this book when you get back to the States. And uh, once that was done, I then wrote a novel that was not the, anywhere near the, the first novel, but I go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction because they both hold a different kind of allure. Do you have a favorite among your novels? Or is that like asking a parent which well, one's your yeah, favorite child? Yeah, I mean, that is. I mean, of course, I would have to say that my favorite book is my first book. Because that's the book that proved that I could write a book. It's the book that introduced me to the world. And um, so if I had to choose, I would say that's my, my favorite. But you love them all equally, just a little favorite of that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you derive a different sense of satisfaction when you complete a novel than you do when you finish a nonfiction book? Or is writing a book such an enormous undertaking that the last word on the page produces the same sense of joy and accomplishment no matter what you've been writing? Oh, no, it's very different with a novel. A novel is entering into a whole unexplored universe where you are, even if there's some autobiographical aspects to it, which there often are, you're making up a whole world that doesn't exist. And it requires so much of you. That is, you have to grow into the ability to hear the characters, to see them and to be them. And so that writing a novel is a deeply it's a deeply spiritual experience. It's a soul experience that is so pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it, which is why everybody wants to do it. Now, writing nonfiction is deeply satisfying. And, and when I write a book like The Strong Black Woman or Don't Play in the Sun, which is about colorism, or saving our sons, which are about black males, it's very satisfying because it gives me a way to be a 
participant in public discourse and to make a contribution to public discourse. And that is satisfying. But there is a much deeper satisfaction to creating a whole world in a novel. There's just no comparison. One of the topics you chose to write about in the 1990s was the epidemic of gun violence and its devastating effect in the lives of young black men. Would you share that story with us, please? Well, that's my book, uh, Saving Our Sons, Raising Black Children in a Turbulent World, which has been reissued with a new updated edition, which came out last month. And it's published by my, my publishers, Mango Publishing, who felt that the book spoke to this, this period as with as much resonance as to that period. And of course it was written, it was published in 1995, which was a period when so many black communities around the country had been what we call now defunded of resources, investment, and that defunding had resulted in what we call then the war on drugs, um, black on black crime, the black male as an endangered species, a kind of corrupt language that really was about continuing disenfranchisement. And it was a really pretty awful time. We, it's interesting that we look at the killings that we're going through at this moment, as you and I are talking, the mass killings. But back in 1995, in many cities around the country, it was for, for several years, it was normal for 400 young black men to be killed every year. We are not back there. And so I was raising my son who was around 12 or 13 against that backdrop. And he had had, we were a middle-class family, but the violence still impacted us because he'd had two of his friends die of gun incidents. And he asked me, why would God let that happen? And I wrote a book to kind of answer the question. And it, I was very gratified by the response to it because it basically covers a year in my son's life against that backdrop where I'm doing everything I can to save him, keep him on the right path. And the response to it was really very gratifying in that many individual mothers, families, um, schools, counselors saw the book as kind of a, a guide, a, an expression of many of the things that, that they were going through. So having that backdrop and you talk about the year of your son's life, what advice do you have for parents raising black children today? Well, see, now we're in a, a different world that's impacted by social media. And we're living in a world where uh, we are willing to talk about mental health. So I, I do wanna put in a plug last week, I did a multi-generational conversation on the issue of can we save the children as a way of launching this new edition of Saving Our Sons. And I'm very proud of it because the age range was from 17, my graduating grandson, to my husband, 75, who for many years taught, was an educator in public schools. And it included a therapist and someone dealing with social media. And if you wanna see that, I'm on YouTube, Marita Golden on YouTube, Can We Save the Children? But if I, but today the issue would have to deal, the, it, how you develop a strategy. The same things I talked about in 1995, surround your kid with a village, um, get, them, get their schools as safe as possible, um, fill them with pride, um, good role models, now, with the advent of social media, it's very important to monitor your, your young people on social media. For a variety of reasons, young Black people are more, more engaged in social media than white kids. So that, that means that parents have to know what your kids are doing on social media. 
one of the most poignant moments of the conversation, Can We Save the Children, was when my 17-year-old grandson, I asked him, had he ever had any of his friends talk to him about feeling depressed or wanting to kill themselves? Oh my God. He, he cited several incidents and he said, many of us feel overwhelmed. We feel um, depressed. We feel like our parents really don't understand the world we live in. And so normalizing talking about feelings, normalizing talking about pain would have to be a big part of raising young people, black, black kids and, and all kids today. And to that point, I think, you know, we've talked about the last two years. Uh, my oldest is 19, just finished her freshman year in college. She spent the last year and a half of her high school career going to school in her bedroom. Mm -hmm. You know, so what, how do they transition back to society and what life was like, you know, in 2019? And now that we've come through this, she mentioned times early on, she would be, you know, be crying in her room every day and just, you know, couldn't see your friends, couldn't do anything. And so we all have mental health challenges that mm -hmm. we're facing. And I think we need to, as in most things, most things, if not all, not look at this as an issue of color, but look at this as an issue mm -hmm. of society and as a country. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I asked my grandson, I said, how did you come out of COVID being salutary of your class, getting all the scholarship support that you got, getting accepted at 30 colleges? He, and, and, and when you were calling us up as your grandparents, if they don't in lockdown, I'm going to kill myself. I can't stand this. Ah, He said, I was able to keep focus on my goals. I knew that this high school period were the most important three years of my life. I knew what I wanted to do. Also, he's an athlete. And so that kept him, you know, sort of physically healthy. But being able to focus on goals and really wanting to achieve them and feeling that he had to achieve them as well as having a, a strong family support allowed him to come out of COVID, not only intact, but pretty strong. Stronger. Well, first of all, congratulations to him and your family. That's uh, quite an accomplishment for that young man, it's terrific. Where do you end up going to school? I have to ask. Uh, Louisiana State <laughs> University. Awesome. And he was a star athlete in his high school. But he said, you know, I'm not, I don't want any athletic scholarships. I'm going to focus on academics. So he's interested in, he's interested in law, accounting, and, <laughs> and, psych and psychology. <laughs> Somehow they all tie together, don't they? Exactly. Strange world now. They all weave together. <laughs> So talking about goals, and I'm sure we could do an entire podcast more on this question, but can race relations in America be fixed? And if so, where does it have to start? Well, we've, we're in a really, we're in a nadir period now because until we grapple with America's original sin, talk about it, and are willing to heal from it, there is no healing. There is no getting over it. There is only progress and then backlash, which is the cycle that we're on. Um, Barack Obama's election, which on the face of it seemed to bode for so much progress, inspired instead Donald Trump. And that's because the issue of slavery, what Black Americans are owed, how white people can acknowledge that and, and not necessarily be guilty, just acknowledge it, do what has to be done. Until we have that discussion, we're always going to be a deeply, deeply flawed and deeply mentally ill society. And mental ill, racism is, doesn't just, racism makes white people stupid. It makes black people stupid. It makes white people mentally ill, makes black people mentally ill. And so is, is one of the main causes of the divisions in our society. So we've just got a lot of work to do. And all we can do is those, some, I, I asked myself, I remember when Donald Trump was elected and I was teaching, like three days after the election, I was in the midst of a teaching a workshop at a writing conference for therapists, most of whom were Jewish and progressive, very concerned. And 
and they were just so concerned and oh, oh my god this the end. and i said i said you know yeah this is bad but for, for black people to some extent this is business as usual and then i said what does what did frederick Douglass ask when he woke up on tuesday morning what will i do well he was going to do the same thing he'd done on monday what did ida b wells do on wednesday she did the same thing she did on Tuesday, which was be an activist for human rights. And the work that we do has never been popular. Kim Kardashian and those people will always be more popular, but we have to do it anyway, because we do change the world. Absolutely do. We have just a few minutes remaining in our conversation, and I always hope to end on a high note when possible. You've researched and written about some of the biggest crises facing society in general and black men and women specifically. What do you do to remain so optimistic about the future? <laughs> I meditate. <laughs> and journal. I have, yes, I have a very active practice of self mental self-care. And it's important for me to not let anybody in my family or anybody in the world steal my joy. That's how I remain optimistic. Very simple rules from Rita Golden. Rita, thanks so much. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, I really enjoyed this. No, likewise. And thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. You can find Rita Golden's books at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and maritagolden.com. And don't forget the University of Marita Golden as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.